Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 18 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q. My name is Richard Kutcher and my guest co-host this week is a man who always seems like a kid in a candy shop when he finds himself in the capital of the insurance world. We are lucky to grab a spare moment from him. So, Sean Ryder of Willis Towers Watson, welcome to the pod. Nice to be here, Richard. Sean, as an avid listener to the podcast, I'm sure you know where our listeners can find and more importantly, subscribe to us. So can you remind them for me where we are? Well, I know that I find you on iTunes, but I'm told that Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts also uh, give people access to your fine work. Your sources are correct, which is good. Uh, SoundCloud also. You can find us on SoundCloud. And you know what? Any other podcast platform, good ones and even the bad ones, you can find us by searching for Global Captive Podcast uh, and subscribe. That means every episode is downloaded straight to your phone. You can also follow us on social media, LinkedIn. We've got a busy LinkedIn page. Uh, just search for Global Captive Podcast and Twitter at Captive Podcast and also on Instagram, which is less busy, but we'll get there in the end. So in this episode, as well as Sean, our captive owner interview is with Crystal Blystone, who works in insurance operations at Cargill, one of the largest privately owned companies in the world. In the second half, we will hear the latest from Karen's Captive Corner. This time, Karen Z sits down with Mike Meehan, a consultant at actuarial firm Milliman. So, Sean, you've been a big part of the Willis Towns Watson global captive practice for the last or past 10 years. But in January, you took on a lead role in the risk and analytics side of the business. Can you just bring us up to speed on that new role? So, yeah, as, as you rightly point out, for the past 12 years, I've been with Willis Towers Watson, 11 of which was in the captive practice and uh, really starting as a captive consultant and then ultimately leading the captive consulting side of the business globally and with a role in the executive committee for the whole gig. And uh, about a year ago, actually about a year right about now, um, the leadership of Risk Analytics asked me to transition out of that role and to take on a client development leadership role uh, for North America. Uh, Risk Analytics composes or is composed of uh, uh, several businesses and several functionalities uh, which includes the captive person, yeah, which includes the captive practice at Willis Towers Watson, but also our strategic risk consulting business, our uh, core tools uh, a proposition, our corporate actuarial business, uh, our forensic accounting claims consulting, and our uh, integrated claims consulting and ergonomics consulting businesses as well. Uh, it also brings in, of course, our ART work. So really, uh, I've been asked to take on a role in which I'm helping the organization build a framework for growing at scale focused around risk analytics. I'm bringing a value proposition, a differentiated proposition uh, to our broking and service operations, uh, to our consultative approach to risk, uh, and of course bringing new ideas, concepts, and capabilities to market. Uh, particularly our connective risk intelligence proposition. So obviously data and analytics is definitely a hot topic in the wider insurance market. And I think, of course, we're getting there on captives as well. Where are we seeing clients and the wider risk insurance market make real advances now on the utilization of risk and analytics? Sure. So I, th- I think there are several facets that uh, I would hope would be interesting to, your, to the listeners. Um, one, of course, is the role of the captive Right, for a large organization. Right. There's a couple of ways to approach captive strategy. Right. One way is to 
think about all the ways you can use a captive, come up with a list of ways you can use a captive and to run through that list with someone. And to, it's essentially throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what sticks. Oh, we could do this and it falls on the floor. Oh, we could do that and it sticks on the wall and we're gonna go do that. Right? And, and you kind of do that, but it's a bit of the tail wagging the dog, right? It's really not a strategy. It's just trying stuff out. Right? The captive's fundamental role from a strategic standpoint is as an execution tool in a risk financing strategy. In order for that to really manifest, you need to have a risk financing strategy. Yeah. Right? And that's where risk and analytics comes into play. In helping an organization build a data-driven, statistically relevant, empirically-based risk financing strategy. And really, ultimately, uh, coming to an idea as to what the portfolio of risk looks like for the organization. I mean, the destination in, in what we think of as the risk analytics journey, right? but really the destination around more sophisticated approach to risk finance is really to view the organization's risk across the piece, across org, uh, enterprise risk, across hazard risk, across pension and benefits risk, across operational and, and currency exchange risk and treasury risk, to see that as one big portfolio and then be able to take advantage of the arbitrage opportunities between disconnected, non-transparent risk markets. And when you do that, you now have an organizational risk financing strategy, and you can then envision how the captive can help you execute on that. So my personal journey, not that you've asked. Go my, for it. I'm, my, always, I'm always interested in personal journeys. My personal journey, journey sure. through this started as fronting and reinsurance, captive consulting, more sophisticated captive consulting, more focus on captive strategy, and coming to the realization that really uh, the, the captive efficacy and the captive strategic discussion has to be about organizational risk finance first. So how then, uh, and obviously we, we definitely, I think it's, you know, it's no secret now, but we are in a, in a harder market than we were 12 months ago, 18 months ago. You've talked a little bit about how data analysis can kind of aid that understanding of the risk. How can it aid you in the actual insurance procurement strategy? And in particularly, how can it be particularly beneficial in a hard market? Sure. Um, this is almost a tee-up. This is a perfect question. Thank you very much. <laughs> I never give tough questions. No, 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 no. It's always hard questions. No, actually, this, from a technical standpoint, right, there's complication to it. Right? Conceptually, it makes all the sense in the world. So, so bear with me here. If you have... 10 different risks, and you have four different options on how to transfer each of those risks. Different limits, different retentions, you know, some loss mitigation strategies, some contractual change or shift of risk, as an example. If you have, for each of those risks, if you have four different ways to approach them, you have over a million combinations of decisions. Over a million. Over a million. And there's, and, and, and when you understand statistically, when you understand the risks in portfolio, and you can model the ways in which each of those decisions impacts the total picture of risk, right? you can navigate a path to the efficient frontier. I'm getting, this is really about how an approach around portfolio optimization, right, identifying the efficient frontier and landing on it can help an organization navigate a hardening market or changing market dynamics. You know, capacity becoming dearer and perhaps the need to use internal risk-based capital in lieu of externalizing risk through risk transfer solutions like insurance and other things, right? But the idea being that if you have over a million combinations of decisions, how do you find the, I know that I can't do it in my head. I can't land on the efficient frontier by doing it in my head. I, like everybody else, ends up in the middle of the cloud of possibilities. But there's a point where 
on, you know, in the, the notion of efficient frontier. There's a point where you can no longer reduce risk without taking on cost, more cost, and you can no longer reduce cost without taking on more risk. Finding that, finding that sweet spot right, through a lens of what kind of risk metric you have. Are you thinking about risk in the context of the 95 MVAR or the 98 MVAR? or the, I don't know, the 95T VAR or VAR. I mean, how many ways can we assess and understand how we view, value, and you know, what lens we take with respect to risk? Right? But once you figure that out, once you understand that, once you understand your tolerance and your appetite for risk as an organization, the larger the portfolio of risk you can scoop up, the better your answer is going to be. Ultimately, though, it's about landing on the efficient frontier in order to navigate that issue. Yeah, so I, un I understand that. So if in a hard market, for example, let's say that you're a captive owner and your your captive is typically taking maybe the first 25 million of risk, and then you you go out to the to the to the reinsurance market beyond that. How do these tools and that approach help you in deciding or modelling how, let's say, you might increase your retention now to 30 million to help you out, or to 35, and looking at the diff can that help you look at the different pricing options and the different kind of advantages of taking more or, low, or lower retention? Absolutely, yes. And, it's, and exactly what you described is admittedly exactly part of the problem, is that we tend to look at individual transactions as silos. Mm. Yeah. So I have a property program, and I'm thinking about increasing my property limit or reducing, I'm sorry, reducing my property limit or increasing my property retention. Is that a good buy? Yeah, it might be a great buy. might be an excellent buy if your lens is only as wide as the property risk. But perhaps it may make sense to take more risk on property and take less risk on liability, to shift dollars from the property program to the liability program because on a relative basis, you get more value for dollar on a liability spend than you do on a property spend or vice versa. I'm not saying anything about the markets in particular. I'm just hypothetically, this is the idea. And if you can think about understanding the property risk in, in context of the liability risk and the EPLI risk and the DNO risk and the ENO risk and the cyber risk and the environmental risk and the benefits risk and de-risking pensions and getting hedges on foreign exchange, you can actually deploy your dollars to maximum effect. More agile. You can be much more agile. You can be much more agile about understanding, uh, well, what kind of residual risk you have, and you can be uh, really more effective with how you spend your dollars in a changing environment, a changing marketplace around risk transfer. There are circumstances where, uh, where risk transfer markets are contracting so much that, or well, here's another piece to this. When I come back, as we think about a hardening marketplace right, and the lack of just availability of cover. Yeah. Right, okay, so we're now forced, where we used to transfer risk, we're now forced to keep a risk because we can't get a retention below $100 million, and we can't get a limit above $500 million, as an example. Right? Whereas before, we used to have a $25 million retention and a $2 billion limit. We now have a significant change to how much risk we're taking, so how much risk we're retaining associated with that particular slice of risk. If we can't push dollars out of that proposition into other areas of risk transfer, we're now on balance, taking on a whole lot more risk to our enterprise than we used to. So it's not just navigating, uh, how can I say, it's not just navigating a changing marketplace with respect to pursuing a transaction. It's also navigating a changing marketplace in terms of what that means for how the CFO is deploying risk-based capital across their organization. Yeah. 
Because now we need to not go open a mine in this country, or we need to not go build a factory, or we need to not go do something that is perhaps risky on the business side, because from an operational and hazard side, we're consuming a lot more of our risk-based capital on that than we are on being braver in our core business. Our objective really in, in how the risk analytics proposition and particularly one around portfolio optimization, understanding the notion of portfolio and optimizing risk transfer strategies or risk strategies, is to unlock risk-based capital to be deployed elsewhere. Great. And obviously a captive would be the ideal vehicle to do that. It know, most certainly it, is. It, it's, it's, it, it, it helps you support, well, obviously there's the execution elements, right? So whether you're putting risk into the captive and buying reinsurance, whether you're doing integrated, multi-year, multi-line risk transfer structures, whether you're looking at stop-loss programs for the captive, whether you're doing parametric triggers and multi-trigger programs, the captive lets you construct things that are outside of the conventional mode that can create even more efficiency than a combination of conventional insurances does and essentially redraws the efficient frontier. And so we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of activity and kind of traction on that in particular. But we also see that the captive as the repository for retained risk continues to provide the, the very important transparency, infrastructure, and validation for an organization's risk financing strategy. Creating the notion of retained risk right, and putting a dollar to it and putting an infrastructure around it makes it more real for folks. So if, even if we're not using the captive to access reinsurance markets or to construct alternative for transfer solutions or to do or to raise capital through sidecars and ILS and all the rest of that, right? even if we're not doing all that, the captive provides a value in terms of being a place where the organization go to see and size that risk. That in and of itself requires you to take a more sophisticated approach to how you view the capital in your captive. And this gets back to the question of portfolio. Right. Understanding the natural hedging that may or may not happen uh, with respect to the risks when they're viewed in portfolio. Right? I'm sorry, does happen when viewed in portfolio, but also the correlation component, how they compound in adverse events. Right? Recognizing that and being able to see the results of the captive and the financial performance of the captive on a stochastic basis. Bit, bit of a bit of a side question before we move on to uh, the interview of Crystal. You've mentioned then about kind of correlation of risks and how they kind of compound. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the two that come to mind: RMS and uh, AIR Worldwide, two hugely respected, very successful modeling companies working particularly closely with the ILS market, but also with the large uh, insurers and reinsurance on their risk. How close are we, or maybe we're already there? And I just haven't heard about it with some of the very very large captives that retain huge amounts of risk, huge dollar numbers, employing those kinds of services directly, or is that exactly what they should be coming to you guys for? Well, I'm going to say that's exactly what they should be coming for us for. <laughs> of course, I'm going to say that. All right, so the, the RMS and the other program, their focus is more on property risk, mm-hmm. right? Where I think the large captives need to go, uh, and really large corporates need to go, which is fundamental to the thing we're talking about in our connected risk intelligence proposition, where large corporates need to go is to recognize that their portfolio of risk is as large, if not larger than, the portfolio of risk of a regional or national insurance company. Yet Yet the insurance companies, I mean, they're the masters of portfolio. They're the masters of understanding the, the trade-offs between, that occur in geographic diversification and in line of business diversification and in structure diversification. They figure out 
what reinsurance treaties to buy, multi-year treaties, single-year treaties. They figure out what risk to carve out and buy facultative reinsurance for so that they're not polluting their treaties. They figure out what risk to further carve out and create sidecars and and raise third-party capital around. Right? Then they do that in the context of finding portfolio optimization and risks in their profit-seeking activities on their assets, the return-seeking. So they're thinking about their asset portfolios, and they're balancing their insurance and risk, underwriting risk, and how that's balanced with their investments risk, and they're doing that all against risk-based capital with the intention of understanding how to deliver earnings per share on that capital, but also utilize as little of that capital as possible for their, for their uh, generating earnings per share, and then figuring out how much risk-based capital they have to go do more underwriting. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's their mastery. Why are, why are corporates still buying property insurance and liability insurance and DNO insurance? Why aren't they buying portfolio insurance? But doesn't that come back to the idea that a corporate with a captive or a corporate without a captive buy insurance? Their job is not, their business is not insurance. Their business is making Coca-Cola or making oil or drilling oil or mining, mining gold, whatever it is. Exactly. But I think bringing it back directly to captives is the very, very larger captives. Should there be a much more professionalization of managing that captive? in terms of doing all those elements you just talked about, kind of understanding the risks, tying that up with the capital, your investment strategy. Do we still see, and I, don't get it wrong, and we both know there are exceptions in, in, in this comment, but um, you know, do we see that captors are still treated as a just a, a subsidiary far away that takes some risk on as a cost center rather than looking at how you can really squeeze that efficiency and, and value out of it? So yeah, without editorializing on individual cases, <laughs> I will say that I think there's a tremendous opportunity for captive owners, particularly large corporate captive owners, to uh, view the captive as a mechanism through which they can manifest the portfolio notion of their risk and pursue risk transfer solutions that recognize that portfolio approach. I think that there's an opportunity to take on the technology and sophistication and infrastructure, the risk and the analytics, and the risk transfer structures that have supported the insurance industry. Your point is that it's not, it's not their job, right, to go run an insurance company, really, right? Their job is to go manufacture the thing they're manufacturing or go build the thing they're building. I, I get that, right? That doesn't mean that, that, that we're not missing a trick. And, it, and, and that disconnect is how the insurance industry makes money. They understand the notion of portfolio better than the individual consumer does or the individual corporate buyer does. And... The reality is, is that in, in, this, in the large corporate space, there's enough diversification, there's enough complexity, and there's enough uniqueness to their risk to develop a bespoke notion of portfolio that then will empower them to not just approach the conventional insurance market in a different way and not just approach the alternative risk transfer market in a different way, but really, ultimately, you know, I, would, I would love to see a place where we're going to kind of auction-based capacity. Well, really interesting uh, discussion to start this episode off. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, our captive owner interview is with Crystal Blystone of Cargill. In her role in insurance operations, Crystal works closely with the group's captive, Minnetoka Insurance Company, domiciled in Vermont. And I met up with Crystal in VCIA annual conference in August in Burlington, Vermont. And she began by telling me a bit about Cargill and its huge portfolio of business activities. So Cargill started in 1865, William Wallace Cargill. He started it with a single grain storage 
and it's grown into one of the largest privately held companies in the world. So currently today, we have 150,000 employees, and it reaches in 70 countries. And Cargill being you know, as, as large as it is, they produce products and services across different sectors. Um, a few of them, the agriculture sector, would be like your cotton, palm oil, animal feeds, and farm services. In the food sector, there's you know, flour, salt, cocoa and chocolate, beef and poultry, eggs and sweeteners. Uh, in the industry sector, you have energy training, ocean transportation. And then finance would be risk management structure finance. So very, very big into a lot of the industries. So. Great. So a big company, I presume that creates a pretty challenging risk profile as well. So what is your role at Cargill? Yep. So my role at Cargill, um, sitting in with the global insurance team. So we have 14 employees um, for insurance professionals. Six of them are outside of the U.S. Um, and my role for insurance is really working on the captive. So I spend a lot of my time and most of my time on the captive. And so my role is really focusing on, you know, how do we place in the programs that are in the captive in 70 countries. So we do a lot of work with fronting partners, and that's where I really fit in as I'm working directly with the fronting partners. So can you provide some background then on Minnetonka Insurance Company? When was it formed uh, and where was it formed? So Minnetonka Insurance Company. So when Cargill first established a captive over 60 years ago. 60? Yep, 60 wow. years ago in Bermuda. You're, you're old. <laughs> so that's it. It's one of the oldest, so... Yeah. Uh, yep, started in Bermuda. It was called First Horizon in Bermuda. And then in 1987 is when we moved to Vermont. So we've been here for 32 years. Um, and that's when the name changed to Minnetonka Insurance Company. So that's how long we've been around. So um, programs have changed over the years. But since since it moved into Vermont, um, we've been pretty stable with what we're offering, mostly non-U.S. stuff. Okay, then. So a bit more detail on that. How has the captive grown and, and evolved over the years? And, and what lines does it write today? Yeah, uh, it's it's grown even since I started. So I moved into the captive world about five to six years ago, and it's really taken off. And that really has to do with Cargill's strategy has changed on the risk management side, and they're really trying to keep the risk management in-house. And so with that strategy, the captive has become the big tool of how do we do that. So from a risk perspective, we're taking more risk. Um, we're no longer buying reinsurance in some of our programs, so that's wow. happened in the last couple of years. Um, Our profile has also expanded. So we brought in non-U.S. employee benefits uh, 2014 that came into place. So we're we're still growing. Um, Employee benefits were in 40-some countries. And again, the the goal is to get, you know, up to the 70 countries. So we still have a ways to go. Um, And like I said, more risk. We're we're looking at a couple programs of, again, taking the extra layer, taking the extra quota share percentage. So... So you mentioned before that uh, one of your key parts of your role is working with uh, fronting partners. Uh, do you also work with the EV fronting partners? And, and if so, how does that relationship differ to your traditional kind of P&Z fronting partners? <laughs> so different. <laughs> um, and, you know, the challenge with employee benefits that we have is different from my P&C fronting partners. Is It's just me, you know, and we're working on the global strategy for, for that placement. You bring in employee benefits, you now are touching you know, people's lives, you're doing medical if you want to bring medical in. So there's an HR component. So I do work with the fronting partners for the captive stuff, but to get it in is really the HR people. So we have now a co-relationship with our HR team and the captive team, both you know collaborating together to work with the fronting partners. And we chose three. Yeah, keep them honest. <laughs> uh, well, not just to keep them honest, but because we're in so many countries i mean in latin america region you will really see you know one of them is really dominant versus a couple other ones and you know in some of the asia reasons so 
to kind of make sure that our employees weren't having too many changes. We really needed three of the big partners to help us to try and drive this into the captive. So it's very different. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet that is challenging to manage. So how do you ensure then at, at the parent level, obviously it sounds like the parent's pretty committed to the captive, invested in the captive. How do you ensure though that the captive's value is demonstrated and communicated constantly to the parent company? Uh, yep. So we report pretty high up into the company. So we do have um, the story being told to the CFO. So, you know, he, he is in, involved in that he's hearing what we're doing, especially with the new changes that are going on. And the employee benefits, what we had is an executive team member was a sponsor of that project. And so that really helps drive the, you know, the communication around what we're doing. And so they get regular, It's it's been about once a year, they get regular updates on that project, how is employee benefits going, you know, and that drives the value of bringing it in but also different things we can do for our employees so we we keep that communication open and going so they can understand the value that the captive is bringing and then lastly on a more on a more general question what do you see as some of the uh, challenges uh, facing the captive market and operation of, of captives today I would say, especially in my role, the biggest challenge is being in so many countries, that constant change of local regulations. So I I think anybody who's doing business outside of their own country is going to have that challenge. So it's finding the right partner who, you know, definitely understands it, isn't in those countries, is up to date providing those changes because we we need to be compliant. We need to find the, follow the local regulations. So that would be my biggest challenge for every program. So you think we have five different programs in the captives. We have property, we have river marine, we have ocean marine, employee benefits, and non-U.S. casualty. All of those have the outside of the U.S. component, and they all have their different challenges. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. So welcome back to episode 18 of the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Mr. Sean Ryder. More than 10 years within, or sorry, I think it was 12 years you said, uh, Sean, within Willis Towers Watson, and also a significant amount of time at HSBC Insurance Management prior to that. And there's been plenty of disruption on the captive management landscape uh, in the past couple of years, M&A activity at the group broker level, but also some direct acquisition among independent captive managers and greater involvement from national brokerages, particularly uh, in the US. I think we saw Holmes Murphy complete uh, acquisition of global captive management in Cayman a couple of weeks ago. Do you expect to see captive consulting and management divisions to remain closely linked or do you think these are, are very separate businesses and disciplines? So it's a loaded question, obviously. It is, it is, but it's easy to be on both sides of it. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I think that fundamental to being an effective captive manager for, uh, for significant complex accounts, right? Within your captive management service, within your delivery, you need to be think you need to be able to engage the client on a strategic level as to how they're thinking about captive utilization and to bring thoughtful resources to bear, right? Around. Uh, an ever-increasing level of sophistication that clients demand of the captive function. 
Right? When you're in board meetings, being simply a ticks and ties accountant isn't enough anymore. Right? It really is about delivering forward-looking capabilities, not just in terms of generating financial statements, but in thinking about how the captive can be useful and engaging with clients uh, in a thoughtful way. So as a result of that, I think that the captive consulting function needs to be very closely aligned to the captive management function, recognizing that there are different skill sets behind that, different capabilities, and different day-to-day uh, uh, -day focuses in life. Um, I'd also say, however, uh, that the captive consulting function needs to live in the larger context of risk finance strategy. As the, as the captive utilization idea, the strategic use of captives and thinking about capital deployment and risk-based capital and how and, and return on investment for captive strategies, that needs to live in the context of the organizational risk financing strategy, as I mentioned earlier. This is like a mantra I'm living right now, yeah. um, but, but it, it really rings true to me. There's no, use, there's no use having a broker who's disconnected to the fact that you have a uh, captive which has been utilized. You need to have that broker connected to the well, idea that the broker, the captive is going to play some part in that program. Exactly, you do. And, and, and so often that's a point of frustration for folks is when, is when the captive idea and the broking transaction idea are disconnected. That's a, that's a point of frustration that, frankly, we exploit all the time in order to pursue opportunities. Right? But what I'd also say is it's, it's the consultative approach and the management approach. Right? Establishing a risk financing strategy will give effective direction to the brokers and the execution of transactions right? and the captive in terms of how it's going to be utilized to maximum effect. So the center point for a lot of it is around organizational risk finance strategy for me. Great. Well, now it is time for another trip to Karen's Captive Corner. This week, Karen Z is joined by Mike Meehan, a well-known consultant at actuarial firm Milliman. Mike began by telling Karen about the role actuaries play with captive insurers. So as actuaries, we, we provide a variety of services to um, all different captive forms. So initially, as a captive is going to, um, you know, they're, they're looking to file an application and begin operations, uh, they're going to come in and ask us to do a feasibility study. So by that, uh, we'll start looking at what lines of coverage they want to consider for the captive. We'll start looking at uh, what sort of retentions and what sort of risk they would like to retain, um, what sort of reinsurance they're going to have in place as well. So as part of that feasibility study, we're going to look and uh, estimate losses for the first year of the captive. So by doing that, we look at um, how are these lines of coverage performed in the past. It, we don't necessarily have historical data um, in all cases for these, for these companies because oftentimes they don't have any claims history. Um, so that, that's one of the challenges we face. But um, the goal of the feasibility study is to identify what lines of coverage would be best served by putting them into, into a captive. And by looking at what different retention levels, um, the company can then evaluate their reinsurance options to um, ultimately combine those and, um, and find what, what, uh, what scenario best fits their risk appetite. The feasibility study gets included as part of uh, an application to the regulator. And at that point, uh, it's usually a, a go or no-go decision. But typically, if you get into that stage uh, where we've projected ultimate losses and premiums for the first year of the captive, we've created these uh, performa financial statements. At that point, uh, the captive is well on its way to, to getting licensed. Once a captive is up and licensed, there are a number of other services that we will provide for them. So annually, they're going to need to meet the regulatory requirements. Uh, typically, that's going to include uh, a reserve study each year. Uh, and we're also going to include a statement of actuarial opinion. And they really go hand in hand. So the reserve study, um, we're estimating reserves, how much money that the captive needs to, to set aside for pay for claims. 
Um, and the reason we're doing that is, as you might imagine, you know, some of the claims, um, some of the claims for long tail lines of business could take, you know, quite some time before they're ultimately paid out. Um, so our job is to assist the companies identify how much money they need to put aside today to pay for those claims as they close out. Um, and then the regulator on top of that wants to see typically a statement of actuarial opinion where we compare how much money the, the company, the captive is actually reserving um, and we, we make sure that it's a reasonable amount to, uh, to fund those claims. And finally, uh, each year uh, oftentimes the captives will need additional assistance with regards to pricing their products as well. So uh, similar to an exercise we conduct as part of the feasibility study, uh, we're going to estimate uh, the cost or how much, what, what's the expected losses for the upcoming year for that captive program and ultimately assist them in, in estimating premium amounts for that upcoming year as well. So is there any one topic or issue that is keeping Milliman particularly busy at the moment? Um, you know, interesting question. I, I, I guess I wouldn't say necessarily an, an issue or topic. Um, what's really keeping me busy right now is captive feasibility studies. There seems to be um, a lot of interest this time of year. Generally speaking, I find that you know, folks are considering captives really in the second half of the year. Um, they start thinking about the renewals for the upcoming year and, and they request the feasibility studies so that they, so that they can get licensed uh, in time for typically a January 1 renewal. I would say that this year in particular, I've noticed there's been a, an uptick in feasibility studies uh, much earlier than normal. So in, in the first and second quarters this year, uh, we certainly saw quite a bit of activity in the captive feasibility uh, area. So I would say that's really been driving most of my, uh, I guess, captive-related attention outside of our normal uh, services that we provide to our existing client base. So how important is the role of independent actuaries to the health of individual captives and the wider captive industry when ensuring arm's length pricing? I've always been a big fan. Now, I, I, recognizing, you know, I work for an independent actuarial firm, um, and I, I really understand, you know, the, the benefits of that. Um, I think it's important, um, if, if for no other reason, um, it, there's a perception out there. You really want to have an independent look to make sure that uh, the program is operating uh, as it should. Um, it's good to have an independent look at pricing, an independent look at reserving. Um, I think at the end of the day, having uh, a clear independent trail uh, supporting the captive program, I think that that's uh, really well received in the industry, particularly by regulators. So I think it's in everybody's best interest. It's also just good governance. So I, I always recommend to, to go the independent route whenever possible. So we often see captives write policies and coverages that they're not able to find in the commercial market. Does that provide a particular challenge for actuaries? The first part of that is very interesting. So, you know, companies do want to write new and unique coverages that are they're really specific to their exposures. And that's really one of the benefits of, of owning and operating a captive, captive right? So um, it allows you a lot of flexibility. Now, that flexibility leads to challenges, and uh, oftentimes those challenges are, are borne by the actuary. So, you know, in, in, in a typical case, the actuary likes to look at the past to predict the future. And you know, more and more now we're seeing companies, they don't have that historical data and information for us to, to rely on and look back on. Um, so then we may start looking at uh, insurance industry information uh, that may be representative or reflective of the, the captives, um, uh, the, the lines of coverage they hope to, to insure. Now you get into areas where maybe there is no industry information as well. And that's where, that's where really uh, the good actuaries are able to separate themselves um, and, uh, and, and really create that value added. Um, it, it often takes uh, a much deeper dive into the exposures that the company is looking to ensure, uh, really getting a thorough understanding of you know, what could go wrong and how bad could it be. Um, and, and it really becomes more art than science at that point. So 
it, it's, it's certainly important to have uh, you know a good actuary behind the program and to make sure that they're doing you know everything that they can do to make sure that the product is ultimately priced correctly. So, Sean, what's your, what, I know that you know Karen Z very well. Uh, what's your first impressions of Karen's Captive Corner? Oh, I love it. I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic on a variety of levels. I mean, I've had the good fortune of knowing Karen uh, since before she formally got into the captive space, right, which, was, uh, which was great fun in my work with the University of California. Um, but really, what, what Karen's Captive Corner is, is doing, right, it, it's taking the perspective of someone who is an emerging talent, a rising star, correctly identified as a rising star, an emerging talent in this space, and who, with fresh eyes, is looking at the complexity and the nuances and the things that for the past now almost 20 years I've kind of learned to take for granted, right, to go and kind of explore that and to challenge that and to kind of you know, bring it forward. So I, I think that for the industry, for kind of personally, I think that for the industry, I think that for our uh, urgent need to bring young talent into our space, Karen's Captain Corner is fantastic. The other, thing, the other excellent thing about that for me is that Karen actually knows what she's talking about. And she actually is a practitioner, whereas I'm just this kind of outsider bloke that just gets people like you into, You're just a, in, it into the a dark. Time. You're just winging it. The I'm whole literally time. That's, just. That's your gig. I I'm you. literally just winging it. So, um, Sean, anything? Uh, I know that you're a fan of London, fan of coming to London. Uh, anything else exciting planned? This exciting planned for your for your trip to London this week? <laughs> oh, every time. But you know, I was at the Tottenham game last night. Yeah. Well, in the Tottenham end or in the Bayern Munich end? Uh, well, in the Tottenham end. <laughs> Which was, which was a real bummer. I think that I, I'm told that in 137 years, they have not given up seven goals at a home game. So it was kind of a calamity for them. That was kind of sad. It was. I was watching it while typing up our interview today, actually. Uh, last night, I was watching it at home. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Tottenham. I don't dislike them. But uh, uh, I was kind of sitting there wincing as, as goal one, two, three, four, five, six, seven went Yeah, in. that was kind of rough. That, um, that, that was kind of rough. They started out really well. They started out really well. They then did. Then it fell apart. That's very Spursy. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, Spursy. No, I've not heard very Spursy. But now the, I'm going to add it to my lexicon. The Spursy phrase means... This is one of these weird English things I say every now and then. It's very Spursy. Well, Spursy is is a, a colloquial term for kind of screwing up when you're in a position of strength because Tottenham have got a record of screwing up in, 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 in good positions. Oh, kind of like saying snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. Yes. yes. Yeah, kind well, of very, yeah, it's very okay. spursy. And any, any uh, I know you're a fan of the local cuisine here. Any, any good spots you recommend for our, your fellow US listeners? I know you're well, a fan I'll, of a Ned. I'm probably going to go down, I was going to say, I'll probably go down <laughs> to the Ned for a drink this evening. <laughs> <laughs> and curry tonight at Raj too, so that'll be a fun time. I can't, I can't say that we're sponsored by the Ned, but uh, I'm, I'm also a big fan. So, uh, I, I, <laughs> no, I think the Ned is sponsored by you, actually. <laughs> it's the other way around. Thank you to all of our guests this week. Crystal Blystone from Cargill, Mike Meehan as the latest survivor of Karen's Captive Corner, and of course, my co-host, Sean Ryder. Thank you very much. My pleasure. See you next time, Captives. Captives.